0: Well, first up, let's head back to Ottawa, a little further east of Toronto and the the height of the blockade around Parliament and the decision to invoke the Emergencies Act for the first time on February the 14th this past year. A report today from the Toronto Star citing meeting minutes and agendas submitted last week to the federal court raises some interesting new questions about that decision and the circumstances surrounding it. It is part of a case where civil liberties groups are challenging how Ottawa invoked the Emergencies Act. They revealed that the night before, on February 13th, the prime minister's national security advisor told cabinet that there was, quote, potential for a breakthrough with the occupation around Parliament Hill. According to the cabinet meeting meeting minutes, rather, which are not verbatim, uh, Jody Thomas, who was the, uh, the advisor, told Trudeau and his assembled ministers that law enforcement, quote, law enforcement gains have been important and there was potential for a breakthrough in Ottawa. Well, the Office of Canada's Public Safety Minister, who is head on this file, said the advisor was referring to negotiations led principally by the city of Ottawa. Those were obviously ultimately unsuccessful. Um, And the government considered this factor in a decision to invoke the Emergencies Act, so trying to explain exactly what was said. But it certainly provides some new insight, just a bit, at least. A lot of those pages were uh, were blacked out, but uh, provides some insight into what may have been going on in those hours before the Emergencies Act was invoked and just what the rationale was behind it. Joining me now with more on this is Michael Kempa. He's an Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa and someone who's followed the blockade, the, inv- the invocation of the Emergencies Act, and all of it very closely then and now. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you. So what do you make of this? I mean, it does provide some insight into what was going on, but this, uh, land, a lot of people are landing on this idea of, quote, potential breakthrough. What do you make of it?
1: Well, potential breakthrough, that's very strong language. Um, it is good now that we're starting to get a little bit of the background information dribbling out through the civil court cases, uh, the uh, rights groups bringing court cases against the government for invoking the Emergencies Act. Of course, government does not release as many facts in a civil court as they ultimately will in the public inquiry under Justice Rouleau that will really start gathering some steam in September. But if we're referring to the negotiations between the city of Ottawa and protesters, that was to do with removing trucks from the residential areas of Ottawa and concentrating them around Parliament. That process was moving too slowly to have been deemed a success. Now, Andrew Lawton. Uh, an independent journalist up at True North, has got his book out. Now, his account is that the reason that it was not progressing quickly was he argues the police were impeding protesters leaving the area. That's their story. Um, I expect Justice Rouleau will look into that much more closely. Uh, the thing that gives me pause there would be elsewhere in that book, and many of the protesters have claimed that the police were on their side So we can't really have it both ways there. Were the police impeding them, withdrawing, or were they on their side? These are questions for the commission coming up in September.
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what emerges from that, certainly. I mean, there were other protests, or there were other blockades going on. We think of Coots, Alberta. Obviously, that one has come up. Um, There was certainly the one at uh, the Ambassador Bridge that had just ended at that point. But it does paint a pretty interesting picture just of how complex the situation was. It was not it was very gray. It was not black or white, was it?
1: No, and it's complicated. It, it, the other thing that stood out for me in the documents that we've now got through the civil case, you know, released or filed through the courts, is I think that the federal cabinet has it right where they're discussing the movement and they say there's perhaps 5% of these protesters who are connected and very committed to a a, a more radical movement to change government or Uh, overthrow an elite system of government as they may see it these are people who had ties to the weapons that were found in coots alberta but this is five percent of the protest 80 percent or more of the protest were canadians who were there on issues of vaccine mandates and then correctly these documents i think also say that about 15 percent are what you could call swing protesters they could go one way or the other and end up sort of on the more mellow side of protesting COVID-19 mandates, or be recruited and pulled into that more radical side, the people who see that this is all tied to a global conspiracy of elites, whether it be the World Economic Forum or some other shadowy figure of of, uh, groups of people that are trying to undermine our rights to clear way for extreme profits and so forth and so on. We're very worried about that 15%. We can deal with 5%. If they're joined by 15 more to make a substantial number of people, we've got a serious security threat in this country.
0: What I found interesting about the details that were released or reported on today, first by the Toronto Star, was it it presented two different hypotheses, depending on what side of the political spectrum you tend to be on. Mm. One, that it wasn't necessary, or two, that they actually went through a lot of discussion about this, that this was a well-thought-out decision. If they were talking about a potential breakthrough and weighed that, uh, then that, lends even more weight to the final decision that was being made. So I've seen both opinions circulating out there today. What do you think?
1: Well, they should have discussed it. Everything should have been on the table. What's important for me is that the same uh, high-ranking civil servant who raised these matters about a potential breakthrough, Ms. Jody Thomas, one of the main security advisors to the Prime Minister, she raised that issue. And also she herself, two weeks later, did say that the Emergencies Act proved to be absolutely necessary. So for me, it's about you've got to stick with that detail, build that timeline, and connect who said what. I would be very concerned to see that there had not been this manner of discussion at a cabinet level and in the integrated security uh, group there. The thing being, no government would ever want to invoke the Emergencies Act. It is not in their interest. It's political dynamite. It is something that... Basically, there is very little political upside to a government invoking such extreme legislation. They would have discussed it very carefully, and it would have been, however you want to analyze it in terms of political gains to be made, their last choice to move in that direction. I'm finding it very hard to follow the argument that it would have been in the interest of the prime minister to jump the gun, ignore something that looked like it could have been a significant breakthrough, just because he and his cabinet wanted, for some strange reason, to invoke the Emergencies Act.
0: Another part of the reporting I found interesting was – a comment that or at least a reporting in in those, in those documents that uh, there was concern at least the Prime Minister had said that he'd been speaking with other people internationally. I imagine the Americans were on that list that somehow Ottawa was no longer able was losing control of this or at least that was the perception internationally that uh, that Canada was not able to handle these protests, and that might have been one of the things that they were weighing as well was Canada's international reputation uh, you know for a number of reasons uh, when it came to that decision.
1: Well, absolutely. And and not only because of our vanity of how others might see us, um, but rather, I mean, doing major international trade in partnership with the United States requires the American government to see us as a stable democracy that can handle our internal affairs and protests in, a, in an expedient type fashion. When President Biden, made the statement at the time of the blockade of the Ambassador Bridge into the United States at Windsor, that if needs be, he could offer up some assistance from Homeland Security to help Canada uh, get the situation under control. That was not so much of an offer as it was a promise that this would be given if we couldn't get our own situation under control. That's how I would read it. It's incredible. You cannot be seen to be a nation that cannot Maintain civil order within its borders and expect to do business with the other G seven nations around the world.
0: It's a nice segue, Michael. Coming up next, we'll be talking about exactly what's going on south of the border these days. Uh, We found out more today about the FBI's search of former President Donald Trump's Florida home. Uh, Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, was out today uh, doing some explaining, and we'll get to that after this. I personally approved the decision to seek a search warrant in this matter. The department filed the motion. To make public the warrant and receipt in light of the former president's public confirmation of the search the surrounding circumstances and the substantial public interest in this matter. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland there talking about the U.S. Justice Department uh, asking a court to unseal the search warrant the FBI received before searching the Florida estate of former President Donald Trump. The search warrant was part of an ongoing Justice Department investigation into discovery of classified White House records recovered from Trump's Mar-a-Lago home in Palm Beach, Florida. Earlier this year, again, Attorney General Merrick Garland, they're saying he played a central role in executing the war. The Washington Post tonight is reporting that classified documents relating to nuclear weapons were among the FBI, uh, the items FBI agents sought in that search of Trump's home. Uh, Michael Kemp is with us this half hour, Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa. Uh, this has all been an unusual week when it comes to on the justice side of things. Um, were you surprised to see the Attorney General step out today and speak about this so publicly? Surprised,
1: yes, uh, but very pleased uh, in that it is an excellent, excellent response to the former president, Donald Trump's sort of call that this is a conspiracy uh, move on the part of radical Democrats to invade his home through having taken control of the FBI and all of the sorts of um, patently ridiculous uh, rhetoric about the security apparatus Of you know, the deep state in the United States And all of that uh, You know The Washington Post put it well Where they say that the Attorney General Is calling Donald Trump's bluff on this Now that sounds like bravado But it's a very good Legal and political strategy I like the courts And the legal system Because it's something I refer to As a cool democratic forum It slows conversation down There are rules and procedures, and it forces a very clear, fact-based conversation. People who like to peddle in conspiracy and misdirection, they prefer a very hot uh, communicative forum, put out as many statements as possible, seize upon key words, toss them around, word salad, and so forth. It just confuses people, and in all of that heat and, and, and loss of meaning, it's very easy to align people to one side of the dispute or the other. What we're seeing here with the attorney general is saying, all right, you've impugned the FBI. It's very dangerous to the American Republic to uh, basically encourage American citizens to lose faith in an institution as important as the FBI. So let's put it out there. Let's release the public warrant and show people what we were looking for. It's not like we were looking we were just a couple of couple of binders that the former president took home with him and forgot in his in his briefcase. Let's put it out there what we're looking for, and if you' are comfortable with that, Mr. Trump, uh, then carry on with your attack. He knows that what's contained in those warrants will be very, very embarrassing to Donald Trump personally, but may shake the faith. Remember we spoke about the five percent true believer radicals, and then the 15% that could go one way or another, you'll never reach the 5% with a logical argument. You will reach the 15% who may look at those documents and say, well, my goodness, of course, the former president should not have had nuclear documents at his house and other things that will be named in in these warrants. It's an excellent strategy.
0: I mean, one of the things that was interesting just this week is, I mean, and you talked about it, this is not something, there was a lot of calls for the Attorney General to get out ahead of this uh, because of just how much the vacuum was filled with, as you mentioned, a lot of talk about weaponization of uh, of, of the FBI and so forth, and a lot of doubting the institutions, the, inst- the very institutions that are sort of the backbone of the of American democracy in some senses. Uh, a lot of attacks on them this week while we were waiting for, for Merrick Garland to come out. But this, this warrant would not be... been been granted if there were not due costs, right? I mean, this is where this whole conversation sort of seemed to have gone off the rails, at least for a certain segment of the population.
1: And I would say, again, it's in that 15%. There are people who would not be aware of how a warrant would be issued. They would assume that the the head of the FBI could simply write his own warrant or her own warrant and carry on with the investigation, showing people That it went through due process standards, signed off by a judge who was in fact a Trump appointee himself, will drive home to people that this wasn't some sort of deep, deep democratic state conspiracy to damage the true patriot himself and his and his followers. Uh, It is it's gone through the proper channels and it shows people that the institutions of the state, while not perfect, work better. Um, than any sort of strongman direct system that, uh, you know, people who would like to undermine faith in the democratic state for their own benefit would, would circulate.
0: As a criminologist, uh, do you worry about what you saw unfold so far, or what you've seen unfold so far this week in America, where even the most treasured of institutions, we saw with the Supreme Court recently as well, is really, they've all fallen now into into the realm, into the political realm, it seems.
1: Look, I I, I am always something of an optimist, I think that this is a huge problem. The politicization of all issues, including criminal justice, including policing, as we see here in Canada with the response to the, to the Freedom Convoy movement in Ottawa and across the country. These things are very, uh, not just troublesome because they create heated arguments, they distort reality as to how institutions do work, the procedures they go through, and undermine faith in the state. But we are catching up, where political leaders are starting to realize, as you see in A.G. Garland in the United States, and to a certain extent, the Trudeau government, having released the cabinet documents, uh, waived cabinet confidentiality for the Rouleau Commission that will get underway with real steam this fall, they've realized that it's far better to let the information out than to keep it secret. Because in an absence of information, the conspiracy theories that will be invented and will actually gain currency and spread – are far more damaging than what the truth very well may be.
0: Michael Kemper, thank you so much.
1: Thank you.